Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Week in Review. I am Stephen Cox, along with Chair of the King County Democrat, Shasti Conrad. Hello, Shasti. Hi, Stephen. And Managing Partner of Left Wing Digital, Will Casey. Hello to you, Will. Good morning, Stephen. So this week, we are, of course, talking about Biden's infrastructure package, what is in it, why it is imperative, and why many progressives are saying it needs to go even further. And then in the second half of the show, Will is going to talk with two local activists about combating AAPI discrimination and about promoting equity in local governments here in Washington. So, uh, gang, we got a lot to discuss with the infrastructure package, but I do think that we need to touch on the Matt Gates thing uh, very quickly. Uh, Will, we'll just start with you. Um, what, are you what are your thoughts about what, whatever the hell is going on? When <sighs> I'm only laughing because it's so absurd. Uh, and, you know, it's been a busy week at work when, you know, we're getting to Friday and I'm now just sort of catching up with this whole story. But I think, you know, the only real notable piece of this is that it's truly a sign of how awful and uh, corrosive these conspiracy theories that the QAnon folks have been pushing these uh, these last, uh, I don't know, year, I guess now, um, because he's finding a, a sympathetic audience for this idea that he's somehow the victim of a sting or extortion attempt when obviously what's happening here is, you know, yet another uh, dude is being held accountable for being a bad person. So I think that, you know, that's kind of the takeaway message. And we just need to be focusing on, you know, the person who's actually doing the crimes here. I have a quick question. Um, in order to be extorted, don't you have to a actually do the thing that you're being accused of? That that seems like, a, you know, kind of what, what extortion 101. Um, I my only take on all of this is that I keep waiting for it to involve either pizza or water so I can use the hashtag pizza gates or water gates. That's 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 pretty much all I got. Um, Shasti, I, I know you have a little bit more of a serious take on this. What are your thoughts? I do. Well, and, and on your point about uh, extortion, I'm like, listen, dude, that's not the that's not the defense that you think it is, um, because all you're saying is basically that, like, yeah, it probably did happen. Um, I uh, I just think that, you know, again, these men in power have been doing things like this since the beginning of time. Um, I was just watching Hannah Gadsby's net the other night, and she was talking about how Picasso had a relationship with a 17 year old girl and about how he talked about how you know lucky she was. And, 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 you know, it's just disgusting. These are girls. These are girls who don't deserve to be passed around um, amongst other gross men like Matt Gates. Um, and, you know, his defense was like, you know, he had this generosity to his ex-girlfriend. It's like the entitlement of these people is just absolutely disgusting. And we need to be always we need to be thinking about how do we support these victims? How do we support these survivors of this type of grossness and change up change up these structures and hold people accountable? The only way to be able to do that is if we really hold people accountable. These stories about Matt Gates have been around for years. It's just that we now have a language and a culture where we can talk about accountability and consequences for the first time, maybe in a millennia for men like this. And thank God that we do. I mean, this could potentially be a turning point um, if we see real consequences for him. So obviously we're going to keep an eye on that. Um, so let's shift over next and talk about Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure package because there's so much here. The package does a lot. And like to list everything that it does would probably take the rest of the show. So I'm just going to tick off a few highlights. It would repair physical infrastructure like bridges, railways, and ports, but it would also boost manufacturing, uh, invest in R&D, expand clean energy investments, create nationwide infrastructure for electric vehicles, plus major investments in childcare and elderly care and a lot, lot more. And it would create a ton of jobs. And yet, in spite of all this, 
Uh, infrastructure is often seen as quote unquote, not sexy. Um, I, you know, Will, I'm just going to start with you on this because I know you're super passionate about it. Why is infrastructure so important? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's this is you've hit on sort of the one aspect of federal policy where I truly get fired up about this stuff. Uh, and it's frustrating to me that people don't see it in the same way. Infrastructure spending is the most basic farm function that government serves aside from, you know, keeping people safe. Uh, and I think that this is something that we need to understand as being truly transformational, because this is how we come together and make common investments so that everybody has a chance to succeed in our society, right? Like the same, uh, you know, we would not have the manufacturing uh, infrastructure or the manufacturing jobs that led to the growth of the white middle class in the 50s if we didn't have the massive infrastructure investments in the 30s and 40s, right? And so I think it's infrastructure that made sort of uh, white flight possible in the middle of the 20th century when we built highways uh, in and out of our cities and made commuting more of an option. There's just every single possible problem, advantage, benefit in American society can be traced back to how we build the structure, the foundation of our entire society through infrastructure, right? So this is critically important and might be, aside from the vaccination rollout, the most important thing that Biden does um, in his presidency, at least in the first term. And we know that a lot of progressives want Biden's plan to go even further. And we'll talk about that in a second. But Shasti, uh, I should just mention that progressives played a huge role in getting Biden even to this current proposal. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, climate activists um, push to make climate center um, in this plan. They push to have it be focused on union jobs. Um, it has been incredible to see progressives both through the campaign, which forced this to be a campaign promise that, that Biden needed to uphold in the first 100 days, but also in these, in these first days um, of the Biden administration. Progressives have, they've been pushing, but they've also been partners in being like, look, do what is right and we will be there for you. And I think it's been really incredible to see. Um, and I also like, I've, I've heard some things out of, you know, the Biden administration about his sort of competition of wanting to be seen as a really progressive president. You know, even he's, I've been hearing that he's been loving the little like, you know, barbs around, like maybe he's even more progressive than Obama. That stuff is helping. And progressives have been really pushing a narrative that is helpful for Biden to get the things done that he needs to get done. Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk about both of those things. You know, the fact that Biden is not shying away from comparisons to FDR and also the numbers uh, really support a lot of the progressive aspects of this. And, you know, sort of will in keeping with that, Varshini Prakash, uh, founder of the Sunrise Movement, has a Twitter thread that echoes what I know to be a lot of your thoughts about where this package comes up short on climate. Um, so I'll just ask you two questions. What are some of the things that you like that are in the package about climate and where do you want it to go further? Yeah, I think when she, when uh, Vershini framed this as being caught between two truths, basically that this infrastructure plan is a historic uh, step forward that wouldn't have been possible without all this pressure that Shasti was describing, but also, you know, this doesn't quite meet the scale uh, that we are dealing with of the problem of the climate crisis, right? So on the positive side, we've got a civilian climate core. We've got uh, a past, you know, the PRO Act for uh, unions is included in this. We're finally delivering on 100% universal clean water, a clean energy standard. There's significant rate, uh, environmental justice concerns, you know, prioritizing the uh, communities who haven't seen the benefits of past public investment. All that stuff is excellent and way overdue. On the other hand, I think, you know, we've seen some people making the point that this is only a stepping stone to uh, truly transformational change. And I think 
in comparison to you know the level of investment we saw at the federal government level um, at sort of the last time we faced a crisis of the scale in the Great Depression, you saw funding to employ hundreds of thousands of Americans, and we had a much smaller workforce back then. So now you know the investment that Biden's making in this uh, civilian conservation corps, you know, is only going to employ tens of thousands of people. And so I think what we have to do here is recognize that this is a good first step, but also keep the pressure on because this is not the final version of the package that's going to go through. Yeah. And, you know, on, honestly, there's a lot of work to do. And I think progressives recognize that. And I, we're going to really dig into that in just a second. But, you know, Shasti Will mentioned the need to prioritize disadvantaged communities. Could you just expand on that, uh, the importance of funding for communities that have been negatively impacted by the climate for basically forever? Yeah, I mean, I think just we can say it plainly, right, which is that racism is a public health crisis. I have often spoken in this past year about how it's been there's been twin crises. There's been the crises around the pandemic and then there's been the crises around racism in this country. And the you know, this this plan the Biden has released really does focus on. Um, climate solutions for communities of color. And that is, you know, we already know that, uh, you know, climate change is impacting communities of color in much, in much uh, wider uh, uh, ways than, than in communities that are wealthier, that are more white. Um, and, you know, we, we have to, we have to look at the ways that those inequities are across these um, disadvantaged, marginalized communities. And this plan does that. Um, it does with resources, with funding, um, and with, and really with looking at solutions that will help, um, help these communities. So I think it's incredibly powerful. There's also uh, an intergenerational aspect to this that I want to touch on too. Uh, millennials uh, and younger generations are rightfully pissed off about, you know, basically being left with all this mess. Uh, Will, you want to, you want to sound off about that? Yeah. Yeah. This is my particular hobby horse when it comes to infrastructure spending, because if we look at our nation's history, this is not an accident that this is going to be so expensive. Right. Um, the boomers, the baby boomers who, you know, are all about to hit retirement right now and expecting all of us to keep, you know, paying higher and higher costs for Social Security, for elder care, for all these things that are necessary and they do need um, are the same generation that took, you know, the massive investments in public R&D that were made during the Second World War, the, inter the interstate highway system. System, all of the you know public universities that were stood up uh, in order to compete with you know the Soviets after the Second World War, they took all of that and refused to do literally any maintenance on it. Right, like we have an entire infrastructure system in this country that has been failing for decades. This is not a new problem. This is not something we haven't been warned about. It's a simple fact that after the fifties and the sixties, when integration started happening. People would rather drain their public pools in the South than let, uh, you know, black people swim with their white children. Right. And that is the that is the reality of the situation. And we are still still today paying for the sins of our fathers in that respect. And so, you know, I am tired of hearing about people who are saying, oh, we can't burden future generations with this responsibility. You've already done that. Right. We're already paying for your mistakes and for their failures to uphold the social contract of continuing to invest in the next generation. So now we're going to keep doing like we have done on every other issue that has stagnated in the last 25 years uh, and just finally fix the damn thing. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what's going on here. And like, you know, we need to be going bigger because this is what we are owed as the next generation. And this is what every generation of Americans should be owed by the people who come before them. Um, Shasta, you had something you wanted to add to that? I did. I, I, I wanted to also talk about the um, 
the investment in the care economy that is in this plan, because I actually think that it is a generational issue. And it's actually, you would think that it would be geared towards supporting boomers and the older generation, but I actually think that it's more about what I think Gen Xers, Millennials, and Gen Z are really calling for, which is we've watched as a complete, you know, sort of capitalism and working to, to your death basically is the way to be. And we've seen how it has destroyed our parents and our grandparents. And what we are asking for is that we need more help. We need more support. We need more support in childcare. We need more support for elder care, that we as people are needing more support. And I think that that is something that comes out of trends that millennials and Gen Z are, are really pushing. And I think that it's, it's really um, fantastic to see the type of investment that this plan is giving into, into the care economy. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people saw that coming either. Um, and it was it was very refreshing uh, to see. And I know that there's a second package that's going to focus on that even more uh, down the line. I want to talk about cost uh, because this is getting paid largely by raising taxes on the rich. It's going to undo a lot of the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, there is a capital gains tax. It's going to raise the corporate rate to 28 percent. It was 39% before Trump, but it's better. Uh, it's also going to increase taxes on people making over $400,000 a year. And yet, despite all that, we are hearing from people, uh, Republicans, that the plan is too expensive, but also a lot of Democrats. I wonder how we counter that. Um, Shasti, I'll start with you on this. How do you think progressives frame the discussion around the cost? I mean, I think we talk about the investment rather than the cost, right? We talk about like what Will was saying. It's like, this is what government is supposed to do and supposed to be best at, which is building up in infrastructure for this country. We need it to be a, you know, to be the strong nation that we like to say that America is. And I think we also need to, we need to keep reminding folks that like people want this. I mean, what I saw um, actually all over Twitter in the last couple of days was like, we want more money put into this. Like we want $10 trillion. Like that's the plan that we want and we need. And so I think we need to stop looking at it as like, you know, the scary numbers and, and talk about the fact that this is what this country needs to be able to sort of um, expand and to grow and to, and to come back from the disinvestment that has happened, not just these past four years, but the last several decades. Yeah, I think it was AOC who was talking about how this rightfully should be a $10 trillion investment because it's happening over 10 years. Will, what are your thoughts on messaging around this? Yeah, and I think it's it's a very simple analogy that we need to help people understand here. And, and I think this is a, a similar explanation works for, you know, raising the minimum wage, I think is also kind of related to this, right? It's, it's setting a floor for what people can expect from their government, uh, which is basically, you know, we've been failing to pay our credit card uh, payments on our infrastructure investments, right? Like these things need maintenance, they need upkeep, we need to continue to be building new stuff throughout, you know, uh, the country to make sure that we're enabling and fostering that job growth and, you know, community growth. And so I think, you know, if you are not that the analogy of uh, the federal budget being similar to your household budget is always helpful to us. But in this context, I think it's helpful to get people to understand that if you just weren't making your credit card payments or only paying the minimum payment for decades, and then all of a sudden you wanted to pay off the entire debt, that's going to be expensive, right? But it's because of choices that we've already made that have put us in this place. And if we continue to kick the can down the road, eventually, very soon here, we're going to run out of road. 
So uh, this is something that's urgent and it needs to be done. And I think we need to be talking about the need and like Shasti is saying, you know, the benefits rather than uh, seeding the, this narrative framing around, you know, how much it's actually going to cost. You know, in terms of pushing for more and getting as much as we can, I think, you know, we've talked about how Biden recognizes that Obama's approach uh, of starting for exactly, you know, starting with exactly what you want and then having watered down doesn't work. So, you know, in this context, Shasti, how do you think we effectively push this package and also the discussion around it further in our direction? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was I was in the White House in the first year of um, the Obama administration and I was around during, um, you know, the big push for the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I, I, I so I sort of understand when it's like you're, you're kind of this is like the big piece of, of legislation, basically, that the administration is kind of coming out with and how much you have to be able to really sell the plan and you need to sell it around the country, but also sell it to. Uh, to legislators in Congress to be able to get it passed. And I think one of the biggest um, lessons that the Obama administration taught Biden, I think, and then the rest of us is that um, if you start big and allow it to get watered down, you're going to end up with a bill that almost nobody likes. And and that is what basically happened with the Affordable Care Act. I was around for those conversations where it was like, look, we just have to get something passed and then we'll add on to it later. And the problem was that later never came. This time, it's been really fascinating to see that it's like we're starting at the $2 trillion mark. And then the response from progressives like the AOC, like you just said, is like, no more. We want more. Um, and Will said something, I think, um, really valuable around sort of federal budget, household budget comparisons. And one of Biden's favorite sayings is, if you want to know what someone cares about, like, look at their budget. And I think that this is Biden, like Biden loves rail trains and Amtrak and like he loves infrastructure. This is Biden's way of saying, look, this is what I care about. This is what this country needs. This is what we're going to do. And that's how I think progressives like we just have to keep talking about what this is going to what this is going to give the country. And this is what we need and start. And this is a starting place. This is a conversation starter. And then. I love the idea that we're going to like expand and add to it rather than water it down. Um, and I think that it is a really sort of transformational moment for for Biden um, in this role and for for the Democrats. You know, it's interesting. Biden seems to have always known where the country is politically. And so to me, this is a sign that we're already making things more progressive. I mean, if you look at the morning consult poll, it shows uh, support for, you know, a lot of progressive priorities that are in the package. Uh, 63% of respondents support using money for climate change research. 60% support free community college. 59% support expanding the country's electric vehicle charging network. So it's moving in the right direction, I think. And Shasti, I'll just stay with you on this. We know now that Biden sees himself, as we were talking about earlier, as a transformational president. Um, he has not shied away from comparisons to FDR and LBJ. How do we how do you think we use this to our advantage? I think, look, like being around politicians is that a lot of this stuff is ego driven, just is. And I think we we like let's give it to him. You know, I was I actually read this article just this morning about um, how, you know, Bernie Sanders is actually like still very much in the White House because of the fact that Biden has, you know, sort of adopted a number of Bernie's stances um, and that, you know, Bernie's kind of like, I mean, 
Bernie has said, has described Biden as FDR, which was something that I know having worked on the Bernie campaign, that was something that Bernie was really proud of. Like Bernie was really proud of, of being seen as potentially um, being, you know, sort of the next FDR. And I think that there is something to be said in that sort of like, let's let Biden have that. And then like, and then that way he can, he can lead as FDR did in these types of big investments um, and progressives need to stop fighting each other and fighting. And just sometimes you got to let them have, have the thing that they need to feel able to like, be like, great, I'm going to push forward with this. And progressives need to just keep pushing, but keep supporting. And we need to come from a more positive stance sometimes when we talk about this and not always be the first ones to try to tear down folks who are, who are within our big tent. Well, so, I mean, this brings us to kind of an uncomfortable juncture, which is the politics of all of this, um, because I hear people listening right now saying, you know, this is great, but even the current plan is going to be really tough to get through in this environment. Uh, so let's just start with the obvious obstacle here, Will. Um, how do you see the challenge of getting somebody like Joe Manchin, who I hasten to add is from coal country, on board with any of this? Well, uh, it's not that hard. We call his bluff. Right. Um, I think the reality is we have to learn from our recent successes and not let sort of the, uh, you know, beltway punditry get in the way of understanding the power that we have in this moment. Right. Because I think we saw with the, you know, coronavirus aid relief package that went through reconciliation, arguably this might go through the same path. Um, we started out with a $1.9 trillion ask, and that's what we got. Right. It, obviously, we lost the minimum wage hike, but that was a bit more of a procedural thing with the Senate parliamentarian than it was sort of a substantive disagreement. Of course, we can all remember uh, Kirsten Cinema being particularly frustrating on that topic. But I think what we have to, to celebrate here is that this this advocacy that Chassis talking about has proven effective. Right. And infrastructure is the one possibility where we can really put the screws to people um, who are a little bit hesitant to go as big as we need to go. Because, you know, if we can say, hey, there's going to be funding for a massive investment in rural hospitals or the Joe Manchin hyperloop between, you know, Charlestown or Charleston and, and Morgantown, maybe free health care for every coal miner, like whatever it takes to make it a deal that he just absolutely cannot refuse. You know, that's the way that we need to think about organizing this. You know, he has come out and said, Manchin has, uh, that he wants to return to bipartisan policymaking, but that's just not an option, right? I think that's much more him sort of virtue signaling to the voters he needs to stay in office than it is a reality of how he expects things to move on Capitol Hill. And I think we've seen, you know, in the way that the coronavirus relief package moved through Congress, that we can get this done if Republicans continue to be sticks in the mud, because this is popular with Republicans. This is popular with the voters that Joe Manchin needs to elect him who are also watching Fox News. Like this is not a hard thing to sell to people's communities to say like, listen, people in your community are going to get jobs. You're going to be able to get to work easier. You're gonna have your, your hospital supported. Your schools can safely reopen. Like this is all very popular stuff. Like it should not be that hard to back him into a corner and say like, are you really gonna be the person who shuts all of this down? Like that's what you wanna be known for? Of course not. 
Um, and finally, we have to recognize that, you know, our allies in Congress have just as much power as he does, right? Like we need all 50 senators on board. We need every single House member to be on board, which means that this is a negotiation that should take place within the Democratic caucus in each chamber. And not, we should not even be bothering trying to get you know Republicans on board. If they want to be a part of the process, they can come to the table with their own plan and 10 of their senators who are willing to break with the party and, you know, tell uh, Mitch McConnell to kick rocks on a filibuster vote um, or otherwise, you know, we just need to stop paying attention to them. I completely agree. You know, uh, Hugh Hewitt uh, was saying, like, you know, I, I think this is, you know, if the Republicans want to criticize this, they need to come up with their own plan. For once, I agree with the guy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'll just ask a very, very basic question here. Biden, as we have noted, had a huge win with ARP, but it was done on a straight party line vote through reconciliation. That may be exactly, and you're already kind of hinting at this, Well, that may be exactly how this happens. I'll just ask Shasti, do you think Biden has the political capital to push this infrastructure plan through? I do. I mean, look, the country's been waiting for four years for infrastructure week, right? And like, okay, finally, we are here. We're getting it. Nobody yes. uh, made an infrastructure <laughs> joke. Excellence. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, here's here's where I think, you know, the difference between the start of a Biden administration and the difference in the Obama administration is that Biden was over in Congress for 30 plus years. He knows how that works. And he also has relationships over there, um, you know, and, and, and so understanding what those levers are and, you know, and, 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 and those folks like they value and appreciate, you know, some of what I think Biden has, has done for them before. So I think, I think that he does. I think that he does. I think um, the team that he has assembled for, you know, their Office of Legislative Affairs and whatnot, like these, these are folks who have been around. They, they know, they know how it gets done over on Capitol Hill, and I think that 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 is a, a definitely a leg up than what we what we had previously. Um, and I think that the like you all just ran through the stats. The country wants this, and I think we as an electorate have also through a lot of the work that the indivisible folks have done have really trained in like, how do we push this with our elected officials? How do we make those calls? How do we get this done? And I think there's a much more engaged electorate that is going to push their represent representatives and senators to get this done. And I think that, you know, I think that I think there is political capital to make this happen. Ah, you're anticipating my call to action. Excellent. Uh, so, you know, I want to finish by talking about a few things that could really benefit us here in Washington. Um, there's a lot in there. There's about $80 billion for rail improvements. Um, the package would direct about $100 billion to universal broadband. Well, I'll ask you about that because it seems very clear now that it's super important. But just lay out how uh, federal help will make the difference on universal broadband here in the state. Yeah, I think that this is, uh, you know, a really undersold part of this plan and something that I think we should be really celebrating more as a win here, because as we've seen throughout this last year during the pandemic, um, you know, the digital divide is real. Uh, as of 2018, uh, when I was working on a congressional campaign here in Washington state, we had some research that showed about 170,000 families in Washington state still lack broadband access, right? I mean, this could be something, you know, to go back to your comparisons on uh, of, of Biden to FDR, this could be something as transformational as the rural electrification projects that, you know, we did throughout the New Deal. 
Um, you know, we have currently, you know, in places like Wenatchee and Ellensburg and across Eastern Washington and even parts of the Southwest, you know, kids going to McDonald's or Starbucks to use their free Wi-Fi in the parking lot to do their homework instead of being able to do it at home. Like that's not sustainable. And that's only going to further uh, deepen this divide of, you know, how successful or, you know, economically secure uh, children, the next generation is going to be based on where they grew up. And so I think that this is a huge, huge uh, benefit because at the state level, while we've got a couple of bills working through the legislature to try and make this possible, we just can't, you know, get it done without the resources of the federal government, right? Like they're the ones who can, you know, run a deficit. And uh, this is how we can just, you know, make sure that we actually get this done and deliver for people. Well, so ultimately, given the scale of the problem, uh, our call to action, as Shasti said, is to call your elected and let him or her know that the package is a good start, but that we need to push for even more. We are going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we will have Will's discussion about combating AAPI hatred and violence here in Washington. All right. So uh, one of the things we're going to do on our Week in Review episodes here on the Washington State Indivisible podcast is occasionally check in with some activists on the ground who are working to pressure our elected officials. Of course, there's uh, a lot to be learned from the folks who are leading our communities, but we also need to make sure we're getting the insight from the people on the ground who are actually doing the hard work of moving them to a more progressive position. So here joining me this week, we have Tyra Shimbashi, a, a Seattle-based local activist and community organizer. Organizer, uh, who is fourth generation Japanese and Okinawan, and Alicia Bush, an anti-racist activist and community organizer herself, who's third generation Okinawan American. They are here to talk to me uh, this week about their work pushing back on this surging uh, anti-Asian uh, hate crimes and also the work that they've been doing to increase equity in our local governments. Welcome, uh, Tyra and Alicia. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right, so let's just get this uh, started off. I think uh, we'll start with you, Alicia. Um, just checking in here, how has the past year, particularly uh, in this most recent mass murder in Georgia, affected you personally? So it's been really jarring, to say the least. I've been doing um, anti-racist work for a very long time um, and more um, dedicated anti-racist work for the last five or six years. and. It um, has been it's been uncomfortable to um, try and assess my own position as an Asian American, as an Okinawan American um, in this anti-racism work because I'm not used to um, advocating for my own community. Um, and so this the last year, and especially the last month or so has really forced me to analyze um, my responsibility to my community, um, what needs to be done within our community and for our community. But also it's forced me to take a look at my life experiences. And, um, you know, I always thought that I was I'm not an oppressed or colonized person. I'm a person of privilege and power and I've struggled very little in my life. Um, and so it's been interesting to take a look back at my childhood and, and you know, growing up experiences that were really microaggressions and were 
you know, experienced a lot of subvert racism. And so it's been um, an opportunity to reflect, but it's also been painful to see what's happening to our community, which is very diverse and has very different cultures and needs and geographical origins. Um, and so it's been, it's been painful. A very, I think that's that's totally understandable, and I think it's important for you know everyone to understand that this is not something that's just happening to folks who have a public profile, like the elected officials we've had on the show. This is something that's happening to everyone um, in the AAPI community. And so, Tyra, I want to go to you next um, on sort of an explanation of what you think is causing this you know sudden spike in anti AAPI violence and hate. Um, especially considering we know that those sort of forces have a long historical context here in this country, right? Like we've had a long history of discrimination in this respect, but it does seem like it's gotten particularly worse in the last year. So can you talk a little bit about how that uh, has affected the work you're doing? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's probably a couple of things that are happening uh, in the last year with, with everything. I think, um, you know, we've had, with you know COVID nineteen and you know our federal government calling it things like uh, kung flu and you know the China virus and stuff, um, I think there's been a lot of I don't know I don't know how realistic they are, but I definitely you know there's been through you know the former administration um, also media and stuff I think some tension um, between you know what's happening in China and with their government and everything, and so I think. Um, that's played into what we're experiencing today. I think also mm -hmm. there's kind of this other aspect of it where um, I think, you know, things have been happening. People have been experiencing uh, anti-Asian sentiments, anti-Asian hate for, for quite some time um, and even prior to this last year. But I think we're also hearing people speak up about it more. Um, and definitely because it's gotten so much worse and I think the attacks are becoming so much more common and they're becoming so much more violent. Um, that's a big part of, of why people are speaking up. But also probably, um, you know, I think for me personally, uh, it's been it's been a frustrating, you know, couple years in general. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people in our community have just kind of reached that point where they're feeling really frustrated and really fed up and you just kind of, you reach your limit where, kind of enough is enough. Um, and so I personally, um, you know, have, have been feeling that for, for some time now, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's promising that, that other people are feeling the need to start adding their voices to the mix um, and, and kind of making some more noise and maybe bringing our third and fourth generation American energy to, to the cause and to kind of what we're experiencing in our communities. <laughs> Yeah, that, that brings up a really good point. And, and I think that that's something, I, uh, you know, that a lot of folks who are just now getting educated on this issue are having a hard time processing and understanding is that this is, you know, we always talk about sort of all communities in, in this country not being a monolith, but I think that's particularly true, um, you know, in the AAPI community, given the, the variety of cultures that uh, sort of that broad label encompasses. Um, and I want to key in on something you just said there, Tyra, about being a third or fourth generation American. Um, Alicia, I know that's something that you wanted to talk about and how that has sort of influenced your connection to, you know, your heritage and how that's informing your work here locally. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so actually Tyra and I connected over this. Um, so I am 40 years old 
and my mother is from Hawaii. I've always known that she's Okinawan, but through um, generations of colonization, neither my mother nor I knew that Okinawa was its own sovereign nation with our own culture, our own religion, our own language. Um, and Japan violently colonized us forced us to stop practicing our culture, our religion, our language, and killed many of our people to take over our land. So for 40 years, I worked really hard to be Japanese. I worked hard to learn Japanese, and I worked hard to be as culturally Japanese as I could growing up in the Pacific Northwest, um, being around predominantly white communities. Um, and so um, as I've, discovered the colonization and how rich and deep our histories and our ancestors, how strong they are and how important this work is, um, it's, it's ignited um, a fire within me that has not been there before. I've always just trying to be a participant in Japanese culture, but now I really want to be, um, to decolonize myself and to um, really make deep connections, not just to Okinawan communities, but to other Asian communities um, in our area. And um, I think that the colonization that my family, myself and my family and many others have experienced has been a direct result of survival. Um, so even though, um, you know, we're our own indigenous people, we're considered Jap Japanese um, by the Japanese government. And we are not um, identified or, um, as indigenous by the Japanese government. And so when my family was, or my family is in Hawaii, um, after Pearl, Har happened, Pearl Harbor happened, and my mother was born just shortly after Pearl Harbor um, in Honolulu, um, my family was sent to Japanese American internment camps. And so I think there's just been this strong desire to um, be as acceptable as possible to fit into the model minority myth that we can rise up from oppression and great harm. Um, and that the false sense that proximity to whiteness is safety. And um, one of the things that I think we've found very clearly in the last year, if people haven't noticed it before, that proximity to whiteness is not safety. It's about convenience. It's about using us as the model minority to pit us against other um, marginalized communities and specifically um, the black community. So um, the as a third generation um, Okinawan American, it's prompted me to really try to find my roots, to identify with um, our ancestors, but also how to use their spirit and their energy and their um, legacy to fight for others. Um, that's such a critical point for people to understand of, of you know, the, the diversity of that community and also, you know, the, the challenges of, you know, making sure that we don't fall into those stereotypes about that sort of model minority uh, myth here. And so, Tyra, I want to go to you on this because I think that's something that a lot of folks are finally 
grasping the importance of in this last year as we've seen, you know, an outpouring of, of a multiracial coalition in support of racial justice is understanding, you know, the difficulties that others have to go through in sort of just their daily lives, right? I think that's something that, you know, we're finally getting a lot more attention on the importance of that. And so I just want to create some space here for you to sort of help um, help folks understand, you know, what it's like navigating life as an Asian American in the Pacific Northwest, given, you know, that this is, we are a Pacific Rim city, but at the same time, we're a, we're a predominantly white area, right? And so I just want to give you the space to sort of talk a little bit about that, about that and, and uh, help our audience understand. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I think, um, <clears throat> as Alicia has already mentioned, you know, I think uh, microaggressions are, are a huge problem here. Um, you know, I know the Pacific Northwest, I, I, the way I describe the culture is, um, you know, tends to be a little passive aggressive. And I think that comes across in racism a lot of the time. Um, you know, I think one good example I could give is, um, you know, when it comes to the issue of redlining. I think one thing we, we often forget is that that impacted Asian American Pacific Islander communities as well, um, and up in Washington too. So, you know, if you start to look at maps anywhere and look at communities, <clears throat> you'll always see that the international districts, you know, Chinatowns, anything like that, they're always right next to the historically black neighborhoods. Um, and so there's, you know, just this history that gets overlooked. And um, I was recently, you know, doing some client work and we were talking about covenants, which were attached to the mortgages, the deeds of the houses for redlining, um, you know, and how it it did include, um, you know, very specifically that nobody of Asiatic descent could, you know, be living in any of those houses in that neighborhood, et cetera. Um, you know, and it's just something where the, I think the best example of the microaggression, it's just like, oh, well, that doesn't affect you. That doesn't bother you. Right. That was so long ago. Um, you know, like, oh, people don't really see you for who you are as well. You know, so I think, um, you know, with me, my father is, is Japanese and Okinawan. Um, and so not always fitting into the stereotype of, of what people think it means to be Asian American. Um, or looking specifically like they want you to look, which I think erases a lot of other members in, in various communities of the AAPI diaspora. Um, you know, I think that's that's a really common thing that's happening up in the Pacific Northwest. So um, while we feel like we're very diverse and we feel like there's, um, you know, a, a lot of different representation from Asian American Pacific Islander communities up here, um, it's, it's not as much as we like to tell ourselves. And I think that that can sometimes make people feel overly confident uh, about, you know, the climate up here, the environment up here, um, or just, you know, completely unaware of, of, you know, ways that they're partaking in, in microaggressions or kind of upholding things such, such as model minority myth. That's, that's all very uh, important. And Alicia, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that, as I've done, you know, a lot of self-reflection um, over the last month about my experience as a child, there's a lot of, to those microaggressions, I think it's important to call out some of the things that we see in here because they don't seem initially as harmful or malicious, but they, but they are. And so, you know, one of the many things I remember hearing as a young child is, did your dad bring your mother over from the war? Um, did, you know, oh, you look so exotic. Oh, you must be submissive. I mean, the, the fetishization 
of Asian Americans, especially Asian women, um, is particularly dangerous because it paints us as um, meek, submissive, and um, othered. And it erases us as unique individuals. And um, when we look at the whole continent of Asia, we don't all look alike. We don't all have the same language or religion. Um, we have very different experiences. So it's really important to note that when we think about Asian Americans, most people think about Japanese, Chinese, and Korea. Um, and you know, Southeast Asians have very different experiences than East Asians do. Or um, you know, so I think that it's important to identify what these microaggressions are so that we can look out for them. And that's a great segue um, to sort of how I wanna close this conversation. Uh, and thank you all both for making time for this. This has, I think, been extremely helpful and educational for, for our audience. Um, what should people be doing? Uh, and I think I'll go to you first on, on, on this, uh, Tyra. And this doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, call your congressman or call your representative, right? This is something that, you know, how can people be uh, more sort of compassionate to their, you know, neighbors in the AAPI community? And, and how can we be more supportive um, throughout this, you know, period of, of increased uh, you know, hate and violence. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I think I think the the one best way to take action is to get involved in your communities. Um, and I think not just specifically around anti Asian hate, um, but really in regards to any hate um, and and any segregation, any oppression. Involving yourself in your community, especially if you're in the suburbs, especially if you're in more um, you know rural areas and you're outside of the Seattle proper, um, you know, being able to to build those connections, le learn who's in your community, right, and start seeing people for who they are. So I think a lot of my work has been happening in kind of North Seattle, more suburb areas, and I know I'm not the only one. There's a lot of other AAPI um, who are, you know, just kind of realizing that that's where the work needs to be done. That's where they grew up. Um, that's where they experienced a lot of the microaggressions and stuff. So um, so yeah, I think, you know, just involving yourself, being more aware, right? Once I've, I've learned that once people become aware and start knowing their neighbors and kind of start paying attention to what's going on around them, they realize uh, how common it is, right? They realize that it is happening in their own neighborhood as much as they always thought it wasn't. It is happening down the street from them. So, um, you know, I think, I think that's a really important step, right? And I think it just, it goes back to the idea that we keep each other safe. Um, you know, and so that, that just, it can mean a lot of things and it can go a lot of different ways. But I think, um, you know, when you get into your neighborhoods and your communities and that stuff, it's, it's just as important. I think that's critical. And so um, one last question here, Alicia, as we close, um, are there any particular organizations that are, you know, doing good work in the communities that you've sort of been involved with or aware of that you would suggest people support either by volunteering or, or donating? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So there's some really exciting uh, emerging youth organizers and leaders that are working on AAPI organizi organizing coalition against hate and bias, which is local here. Um, nearly every day they are having um, rallies and protests throughout King County. Um, every Sunday they are um, at Maple Valley, which is where I'm from. Um, another group is StopAAPIHate.org. They are doing great work nationally. Also, um, Japanese American Citizens League in Seattle does great work. Um, and, you know, I think just connecting with your neighbors is really huge too. 
Awesome. Um, we'll provide links to all of those organizations in our show notes. So, you know, you can follow up on Alicia's advice there. Well, uh, thank you so much to both of you for making the time today. This has been incredibly educational and we always value getting the perspective of folks who are doing the, uh, the dirty work on the ground here. So thank you, uh, Tyra. And thank you, Alicia, for joining us this week. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Will. And that is it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will have links to everything we talked about in the show notes. For Will Casey and Shasti Conrad, I'm Stephen Cox. We'll see you next time.